go, hey, like this isn't as scary or as daunting as I thought, and this is something that I can do on my own. And this is often how I will study a passage of Scripture. So we're just kind of doing this together just as an example to say, hey, like I, I could do that. And, and so I want us to do that together. The first thing, when I come to a passage like Psalms 24, and we're going to walk through it verse by verse together, is I, I do what I, we just did. I just read it. And I read it over and over and over again. I, I had someone give me advice one time that the first step before in any Bible study, a Bible study for your own sake, a Bible study that you're going to then turn around and teach, or a Bible study that's going to, hey, you're going to read this, and then you're going to turn around and preach it. doesn't matter what the end result was going, ultimately going to be, but you always start, this person said, read it 25 times. Just read it 25 times. Now, there's nothing spiritual about 25. Make it 24. Make it 30. It doesn't matter. But the point is, read it a sufficient amount of times where you can begin to see all of it in your mind. It's meditating on it. When you hear someone talk about um, meditation, this is what this is an aspect of meditation where you're just meditating. You're, you're chewing on it. Think of meditation like chewing on something. Maybe you're eat, taking a good bite of food and you're just savoring it and you're just chewing on it before uh, you swallow. Well, the same idea is you're chewing on it before you move on. You're allowing it to just saturate in your mind. And then you begin to, as you do that, you begin to make observations. What do you notice about this? What questions do you need to answer to help you understand this? Think of it just like a good investigation. I love detective shows and or good lawyer shows because there's problems that need solving. Well, when we study a text, it's very similar. When you come across questions you don't understand, you write them down and it's an investigation. It's problems to be solved. That, it's really that simple. Now, you may not always have the tools to answer your question, and that's where um, you turn to other people and turn to resources, you turn to other books and different things. But Bible study is not difficult to do. It takes some time, but I want you to see it's not difficult to do. So with that being said, let's walk through this verse together. And I might ask questions, and I'm intentionally going to ask short answered questions because we don't have time for all of us to give our thoughts to everything but I will ask questions of understanding. Hey, what, is, what does this mean? What is this referring to? That, And I invite you to chime in so those oftentimes won't be rhetorical. Um, and we'll see kind of as we go. Again, this is the only screen that it doesn't allow me to connect to both via AirPlay. So apologize, but I'll do my best uh, to, to kind of write. And you can see and help see on the screen at times as we work through, work through this. Okay, So the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Short answer, what what does it mean to say the earth is the Lord's? He's he's claiming it? Yeah. Yeah. Simple possession. I gave the illustration with Ella when I asked her the question. She goes, I don't know. And I said, "What, what does it mean for me to say that? And I pointed to her dress. This dress is Ella's. She, mean, she says it means that I own it. I said, well, that's precisely what's happening here. It's not difficult to understand. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he's, he's making two statements. The Lord, the earth is the Lord's, 
But what else is the Lord's? The fullness thereof. So he's saying the earth. And the, and the psalmist here, David, psalm is, means song. Explaining that to my kids as well. That this is a song that would often get sung. And so when it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, what's happening in the language is he's, he's doing it like a funnel. So, for example, when he says the earth is the Lord's, he's declaring everything, everything that's created is the Lord's. And then he says the fullness thereof, which is kind of a, he's, he's narrowing in. So the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. So he's, he's making, he's being emphatic. But then he's getting to the point, and those who dwell therein, referring to people. So he's starting by saying the Lord, everything in creation, everything that's created is the Lord's. Then he's narrowing in, and he's saying the fullness thereof, so the fullness of everything that's in it, the world, and then those who dwell therein. So it, it's, again, it's just a simple idea where he's emphasizing that everything belongs to the Lord. When I'm in reading this and interpreting this, this is why I, I actually do this. Before I had an iPad, I would print it out and I used pen and paper. And I would just write lines because I'm a visual learner. I've got to see lines. I've got to see things. And so I would print out the Bible text that I'm studying, and I would just draw lines to it. And I would ask these questions. What, what is the Lord's? And it's possessive, right? It's showing that the Lord owns something. What is it he owning? He's owning the earth. He's owning everything in the earth or created being. And specifically, he is Lord over all who dwell within it. He's referring to people. Basic application, King David is emphatically saying that the Lord is your king. Do you understand the claim that's being made? The claim of this text being made from the beginning is that God, the creator of the universe, is Lord over your life. Okay? Then we go to verse 2. Four. Now, this word for is a helpful interpretation just conjunction and the idea of just saying because, right? When we use the word because oftentimes, but you could use the word for. So he went to the store for his wife told him to. We would say because, but you could see how for could work there. But you could also say he went to the store for some milk. One is the purpose. One is the cause, I went to the store because my wife told me to, or I went to the store for something. Oftentimes, context will give us the answer. What is the for here? For he has founded it. Founded is a fancy word for what? Created, right? Well, a founder of a company. He's the one who started it. He or she start, founded a company. Well, so King David is saying that the Lord is king over everything. Why? Because he started it. He founded it. He founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. It's a picture of uh, poetic. Remember, Psalm's a poem here. So it's, it's a poetic way of establishing uh, it on the seas and the rivers. One of the imageries here, because remember, when we, t- we take some things for granted, 
for example, we take for granted that we know that the world is not flat. But there used to be a day when people believed the world was flat. Go back even further, ancient Near Eastern culture, which is the culture of the Old Testament, they had this imagery that you had the earth, the world, was somewhat floating in space, which, which it is. We are out here floating, technically speaking. There's something, you can go under the earth and over the earth, however you were to do that in a, uh, as an astronaut. But the idea is that we're floating in space, and then that led to the idea that it's flat. Eventually, you could go off the edge. And the belief was, because, because Genesis 1 talks about the expanse and the splitting of the waters, the imagery there was that there was water under the earth and the skies above the earth. Another what reason that they thought that is because in the flood, it said water rained and gushed from the earth. So what they believed, if you go, read, go back and read Genesis 6, 7, and 8, it talks about Noah and the flood. And it talks about the water, and it says it gushed from the earth. And because of that, they were reinforced with the imagery and belief that water came from up under the earth. Again, you go and are looking for water, you, dwell, or you drill down 25, 7,500 feet, what are you going to hit? Usually water. And so with a lack of science and a full understanding, that was their imagery. So when it says it was founded upon the seas and established upon the waters is saying that God created. It's a poetic way of saying God created this world as it is, established it where it is, as it is, even upon the waters that oftentimes was an imagery that they believed dwelt below them. So it's just an emphatic way of saying that God in verse one is king over everything because in verse two, he created everything. Because he's the creator, he has the ability to determine and rule over that creation. Can I give a simple illustration? Um, My kids, at times, I'll ask them to do something. And every once in a while, they'll, they'll have the wonderful, daring question of asking, why? You know, but, you know, they could be like, why? I'm just really inquisitive and want to learn in life. That's not usually how they ask the question, why? It's usually like, why? Like, it's a challenge to authority. And there might be a good reason, but the first answer I just want to say is because I said so. Now, sometimes as children, we need to give them better answers for the sake of their learning and growing. But sometimes that's a sufficient answer. It is, it is a sufficient answer. Why? Because, in a sense, I am their authority. Much more so is it the creator of the universe is our authority. This is what David is saying. He is, he is painting a picture of the glory of God, and he's establishing that. Now, you're meditating on this, and you're seeing this. So what's the natural question that comes in verse 3 as you meditate on the grandeur of God and how he has created everything and how he is just in his creation, how he is good in his creation, and that he rules over his creation? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Um. I want you to think of Mayan temples, Aztec temples. This is often a a good imagery. The pyramids in Egypt, we get this a little bit with the pyramids in Egypt. But the temples and the worship sites were often built up on top of a pyramid-type creation. Stair steps going up. Why? Because it was there 
was the place of holies of holies that people believed you're closer to God. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, that it's up high was a place of worship over everything and you're closer to God. And so uh, cultures, not just in the Bible, but all throughout, you go up and worship. We see this with Moses when he goes up on the mountain of Mount Sinai. He goes up on the mountain to meet with God. There's often this imagery and this picture that you go up and meet with God. Again, we saw this with Moses. So who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's basically asking who is worthy to go up and be with God. If he is the one who has created everything, and he is awesome and holy, who is worthy to go up on top of the hill of the Lord? And who has the ability to stand in his holy place? The the implied answer He's going to give an answer in verse 4, but the implied answer is supposed to have us go, not I. It's a a humbling statement because it's comparing the creator of the universe with his creation. It's, It's comparing God with us. But he does answer this question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Let me ask you this question. Is this a descriptor of you? In in reference to your entire life, is this a descriptor of you? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Romans 3 would say, as we read this, we think about this. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As if to say, you do not have clean hands and a pure heart. You are unworthy. Now, there's a few ways as we think about this, as we understand that Luke writes on when Jesus is talking to two of his disciples, and he says, all of the law and the prophets point to me. So we understand law and the prophets, the Old Testament. This is in the Old Testament. We understand that all of Scripture is pointing ultimately to Christ. And this is a passage that either explicitly or implicitly points to Christ. Let's talk about explicit, meaning if we interpret verse 4 to explicitly say that this is a text referring to Jesus, that this is talking directly about Jesus, that King David, filled with the Spirit of God, as he writes verse 4, ultimately, even though he doesn't know who it is, has the Messiah in mind. That would be an explicit reference here to Christ because he is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who never lift up his soul to what is false or an idol. Or it could just be implicit to say the one who is perfect. That one who is perfect is the only one who is worthy, as if to say that we are not perfect. But it is a challenge to God's people, as we see as we look down in verse 6, when it says, such is the generation so right here where it says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. It's, no doubt he's writing this as a challenge to his people to be those people who seek to be holy and seek to be right, as God's covenant people to live faithful. But it still leaves us with the question, he who has clean hand and pure heart, who is this person? And am I that person? We'd all have to say is, no, we are not that person. Right? So as we're reading this, this is the question that's being minded. So who is the person? So as you and I are reading this, we're asking the question, who is the person? So if I'm studying this, I might write this down in my notes. Who is this? 
Is it me? And I would have to say, but if I want to ascend the hill of the Lord, if I want to be in God's presence, then it must be me. Which leads me to ask the right question, well then how do I get clean hands and pure heart? Do you see how this works? It's just simple. We're asking questions and we're just walking through it. And this is how we're studying scripture. Verse five, he, who is he? He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He is referring to the person here, the person of verse four, which will, as we see in the full reference to scripture is Jesus. He is the only one who is perfect. But secondarily, it is referencing to those who are in Jesus because we who are in Christ, who have received Christ's righteousness, we will what? Receive the blessing from the Lord, the righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. In Manhattan this morning, I preached on Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says that I do not have a righteousness that is of my own works, but have a righteousness from God that depends on faith. You and I have a righteousness in Christ that is given to us through faith. Yes, it is not earned, but it is freely given to us. So walk us back through this again. The Lord owns everything, verse one. Why does he own everything? Because verse two, he founded it. He is glorious, okay? If he's so great, it leads us in humility to ask the question, who then can go and be with this God? Who is worthy to be with this God? And verse four says, the one who is perfect. Only the one who is perfect is able to be with God. And that one who is perfect, verse five, will receive the blessing from the Lord of righteousness from God for his salvation. Verse six, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. You know, King David's writing this as an encouragement. They would sing this. Remember, this is a song. They would gather in worship and they would sing this. It's a song of, of saying, who is worthy? I ultimately am not worthy. I am imperfect, but you, we must be. And it's this idea of calling to the faithfulness. And it says, such is the generation. So it's, it's saying, I will be the one who seeks. I will be the one who seeks the face of God of Jacob. That's a song. I don't know the name of the song, but it's a song. There's a phrase in there. I should have looked that up, but that's what I need Charles for. But there's a song that, that has a phrase in the bridge of seeking the face of God, Jacob, because it's come, taken straight from here, saying, hey, we will be the ones who seek his face. What does it mean to seek the face of God? It, it means to seek his presence. It means to be the ones who, who are ascended and are with God on the, his mountaintop. Now, we get to this part here, and we're going to kind of fly through these last few verses. These are the confusing parts, especially. Now, there are some confusing parts in the beginning. So, for example, verse 2, what does it mean to have founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers? Like, what, what's, it, it helps to understand their idea of, of rivers and oceans. So that, that a reference book help, might help you. But when you get to verses 7 through 10, what does it mean to lift up your heads, O gates? Like, what does it mean for inanimate objects, like gates, to lift up their heads? O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the best answer I have for you is remembering that it's a poem, it's a psalm, it's a metaphor, it's poetic. 
It's this idea that I want you to think about a fortress, a walled city. You have watchmen on the towers. Yes? You understand that picture? And a watchman, when they see the enemy coming, they're, they're going to blow the trumpet. They're going to give the alarm. But what, the, what are they not going to do? They're not opening those gates. They're not opening those doors. Because when you do, what you're doing is say, hey, come on in. It's an imagery here of saying, come on in. Because God, the God of Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, they believe to be the God, as we believe, to be the God who has created everything. The God who, who created everything, including you, and is king over all. And he desires to have a relationship with his covenant people. And they understand that. So what is their response to this? What is their response to saying that God, verse 1, owns everything? Because of verse 2, he created it. So how do, what do we do? Who is able to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Only one who has clean hands and pure hearts. And what is their response? God, come be our God. This God, might you come be our God. Lift up your heads, O gates. It's probably referring to the watchman. It's a metaphoric way to say those who are watching at the gates, lift up and open the doors so that what? The king of glory may come in. It's a song. It's an invitation to say that we want the God of the universe who has created everything to be our God. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I want to close with applying the text and then applying the exercise that we just went through. One, let's talk about applying the text. When you and I meditate on the truth that God has created everything, the earth, everything in the earth, including you. Verse one says, God is king over that. That includes you. What does that mean for your life? What does it mean to recognize that he has created you? Verse two. That he has created you. He has fashioned you just as you are. He chose to make me tall and not fit on airplanes. That's how he chose for me to be. He has chosen you to be who you are, created as you are, right where you are. He has created you, not in happenstance, but with intentionality. And he is not waiting on you. Get this. He is not waiting on you to make him the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life. The question is, will you recognize it? That he, This is what the psalmist is saying is, He's not sitting there going, oh, you know, I don't know what to do because my people have rejected me. I created everything, but I don't know. No, he has created everything. And King David is saying, people, notice that. Wake up and see that he is God, not our enemies. Remember, this is, I described this to Ella when we were walking through this. I said, do you know who King David is? She said, no. I said, do you know the story of David and Goliath? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this guy. That the David and Goliath guy. It's saying, we don't have to worry about our enemies. Why? Because our God created everything. 
that we must remember this and recognize this and recognize his glory. Who are we that we might be with him? But yet he desires to be with us. Therefore, open up the doors and let him into this kingdom. This is what the call is. And so I ask you this simple question. Do you recognize that he is Lord over your life? And is your response, open up the gates of my heart, come on in, Jesus. I, I acknowledge you as Lord over my life. And this is, a, this is an invitation, if you will, for both Christians and non-Christians. When we speak to non-Christians, those who go, you know what, I, I've not surrendered to Jesus as my Lord. That's what makes you a Christian, is that you have surrendered to his lordship. That if, this, if you're just here and you're going, hey, I'm trying to learn and figure things out, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We want this to be a place where you can ask questions and learn. But we want to invite you to see that tonight that he is Lord of your life. Would you surrender to him as Lord? For the Christians in the room, we have a tendency to forget that he's Lord of our lives. This is why this was a song that they sung to remember. And maybe we just need the fresh reminder today, as I do, I know that Jesus is Lord, might we surrender and worship him as Lord? Might we worship him as king? Can we just pray for a moment and just rest in on that truth? Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord. And as we study this text, we acknowledge that you are king of our lives. And I pray, Father, if there's a heart in here who has not surrendered unto you, that, that right now they would surrender to you and recognize that you have created everything. And would you let them see that you are, metaphorically speaking, at the door of their hearts knocking. And might their hearts open up and say, come on in, King of glory. Come on in, King of glory. And be the Lord of my life. Father, would you be the Lord of my life today? I surrender to you fresh and anew. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me talk about application of exercise. Again, for those who came in later, Charles is out sick, and so we had to change service up a little bit, and so we didn't have worship, and so we just kind of did a meditation through a passage of Scripture. I want you to see that, yes, it is, it is my job to study and to help give explanation, but all we did was really make obvious observations from the text. You can do this anytime you open up your Bible. Just slow down and just read it over and over and over again. That when I most, there are many times, again, it comes with a lot of study and years, but so I, I say that somewhat as a caveat, but there's many times I come and preach and I don't ever read other books. I just read the Bible and make observations and then I come and teach it. Because a lot of it, some of it is confusing, don't get me wrong, because there's 2,000 years that separate culturally some things that are in here and we don't fully understand. So it takes some time to get digging, but most of it's quite clear. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. You, you, it's, it's, English, it's easy. It's, it's there. And I want to encourage you that the majority, I, let me say it this way. Everything you need to know for salvation and godly living is clear just by reading the Bible. It's clear. And I want to encourage you that if you feel like going and reading the Bible study, you're like, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You, you read the newspaper you read other things. It's just reading it and making observations. And, and when you come to questions and go, hey, I don't understand what this means, then don't Google. 
Uh, Google theology is oftentimes bad theology. Um, ask me and allow me to send you something or allow me to give an explanation because Google has some crazy things out there. Um, but this is where I have the privilege of wanting to be your pastor. I get to help. So write questions down and ask them. But I want us to see that just reading the text, making observations, we've learned a lot and it can be challenged a lot. And so I want to hopefully through this exercise give you confidence to go, hey, I can do this on my own. I can do this on my own. I want to encourage you to do so. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.